I've got my dad's Bible here. When, when, when my dad was a Methodist minister, and he lived to be 92, and um, he loved the Bible. He used to read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. And um, so I gave him this big print Bible, and when he died, I got it back. And um, my eyesight is not as good as it used to be, so it's very handy, but it is heavy. Um, lovely to be with you, and it's, it's, it's great, first of all, to have um, a friendship with Tony and Joy, and, and they have been great, loving friends for us at Woody's, for me personally, with Tony and his role at Muller's has been a great champion for us community house dwellers, and, uh, and it's been great to kind of um, follow the, the Waterbrook story and from moving out of the family home into this building, and, and uh, actually probably be a bit, I know it's a big house, but it'd be tricky to fit in even now, even with a lot of people away, wouldn't you? So that's great, and, and to see all the children here, that's lovely. And um, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. What do, you, what do you reckon? Are we up to um, reading it out loud together? Okay, let, let's go then. So, Philippians 3.12, Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Brilliant passage, isn't it? And Tony said, you, you take an hour on this one. Is that all right? What? what what do you normally do? <laughs> How long do you normally take? Half an hour, that's fine. Well, let me just introduce you to my friend, Chloe. Do, do come out, Chloe. I'll give you a microphone because this is being recorded. And I just want to begin by asking Chloe a couple of questions about this whole business of, of, of pressing on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. So, Chloe, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and, and why you find yourself in the UK. Uh, so, I'm... 31, 31. Um, I'm French, I'm from the south of France, um, and I came to the UK for the first time 10 years ago to do a DTS, so working with Youth with a Mission in Sussex, of all places. I chose an exotic destination. Um, and then I came to Bristol about six and a half years ago, which I, kinda, I came here first to study theology. That was my aim. Right. So, so in terms of a sense of... <laughs> your faith and um, what it means perhaps to, to press on, to take hold of that. What does that mean to you today, Claire? Okay. Um, it probably has changed a little bit, I think, over the years. I'd say when, I, when Dave asked me that question, I thought, oh, I don't know, like, you know, are my spiritual ambitions like praying in tongues more, or that kind of stuff. But I think when I think about it, it's more about uh, knowing God more personally. 
and then embodying my faith so what I believe then become that and do that and in the last months what I've been thinking about is the Beatitudes and how it can the Beatitudes kind of lead how I live my faith so you know be honest with the fact that I'm poor in spirit and I need God's wisdom mourn the things I need to mourn and receive God's comfort be a peacemaker um be humble uh what else oh I'm losing them it's like nine of them um be persecuted yeah, well, I mean, that one, you know, if I really have to, but it won't be, it's not my number one. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like, I feel like the Beatitudes give me a practical way to apply my faith. And that's kind of what I've been pursuing in the last year or so, a bit more actively, I think. Cool. Uh, and what do, you, what do you think God has for you in the future? Do you think you've already obtained everything that you want? <laughs> what, what do you think God has for you in the future? I don't really know, if I'm honest. Uh, I'd like to know in more detail. Um, I think, so I came to England to pursue ministry, and I, I kind of had this set idea in my head that I was going to come to Bristol, five years later I'd be a full-time minister, that kind of stuff. It has not happened. Um, but I, I think for a while I was a little bit discouraged, and I thought, oh, you know, if it hasn't happened, does it mean that God isn't calling me to ministry? But actually, even in through being discouraged, my desire to be part of a, to be doing ministry doesn't go away, and you know, my desire to kind of like have God as the center of my life doesn't go away. So I think that's probably what he called me, but I don't necessarily know exactly the shape that it's going to take. Great. And, and how do you feel you're doing ministry now? What does it look like right now in your life? Uh, I lead a home group of about 28 people. Um, a whole bunch of, it's a very varied group, which I really love. A lot of people who feel like they don't fit in church really well. And, um, and I feel like that's where my pastoral... Um, nature kind of comes into play and I get to take care of them but also share where I'm at and we kind of grow together. That's probably my main point of ministry at the moment. You work for the university chaplaincy as well? Oh, I do, yes. I do work for the chaplaincy of the university. It's a bit of a funny place. It's a multi-faith chaplaincy. So I work with a rabbi and a Buddhist nun, a Muslim chaplain, and then seven ministers who go from evangelical to Baptist, Anglican, Methodist, um, and Catholic. Um, it's really fun. It's a bit weird, but it uh, kind of suits my personality. And just final question, really. Do you think it's more difficult, easier, or about the same for a woman to pursue ministry than a man? Wow, you did ask that question. Okay. Um, I think it's a little bit more difficult, if I'm honest. I think it's because there's a lot of... I guess we've been used to having ma- mostly men ministers, maybe, so... It's kind of a little bit of a change. Also, it depends where you go. I think some churches are quite, it's quite easy, and other churches a little bit less easy. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I did not see that one coming. I did not prepare. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Chloe. Well, Chloe, will you pray for me and pray for, for this, this talk for a minute? Yeah. Uh, God, thank you for Dave and his uh, pastoral heart and his wisdom. I thank you for the way he shares that with us, and I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would rest on him and give you your wor- give him your words and your wisdom as he shares with us today. Amen. Amen. And as, as I speak today, if I do ask you a question, then it's good to answer that question. It won't be a rhetorical question, probably. It'll be a, so what do you think, guys? And, and I just don't know, what, for you, as you listen to these words and have, have heard, heard we've read them aloud together is there anything about Paul as he writes this that he says that, that springs out at you at all, anything at all that says 
Oh, Paul, he's that kind of guy. Or any, anything? Okay, he's a bit complicated. And, and he, he uses language a little bit tricksily, actually, doesn't he? Um, so that, that's one thing. Anything else about, about the passage that... He, yeah, he is, he is very passionate, isn't he? I think you've got to say Paul is a passionate guy. I think he was passionate before he became a Christian, and he was passionate after he became a Christian. Very, and he uses quite strong language, actually. In, in, um, and, and he talks about his emotions, actually, doesn't he? He says, I, I've, I've told you before, now say again, even with tears. So, so you've picked up the passions there. Any, anything else you notice about the passage? Sorry? Humble? It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, in the preceding verses, he's kind of like given a, a bit of a CV of his life. And he says, actually, if you want to mark it on achievement, then I've got it all. You know, he, he talks about, you know, if you've got confidence, I've got more. And he gives himself like under the, <laughs> the, the, the kind of the epitome of good Jewish boy. That's me. Best universities, you know, best tribe. Best pedigree. So, so, but, but, but he's, he's not kind of staking a lot on that, isn't he? But that's an interesting comment. So he's, he's, he's passionate. He's perhaps complicated. He's, he's, hmm, he, he's not, not, pers- not trading on his background. He's, he's very, very positive. Yeah, he is. So it is for someone writing prison, that's a, that's a big deal. This is, this is my take on, on, um, on, on the passage. I think he's ambitious. And, um, and he, he, he's talking about trying to, trying to go somewhere, get hold of something. There seems to be an, an incredible amount of, of spiritual ambition in, in this <laughs> chapter. And, and I think that's interesting because earlier on in this book, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says... Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And I think we can see in the first, the first part of these, these verses a kind of contrast between selfish ambition and spiritual ambition. And I want to say, by the way, that I think selfish ambition can exist in the church. There can be competition in the church. There can be a desire to elevate yourself and put yourself forward. And actually, it, it's likely that this passage is in the context of Paul having, if you like, opponents or enemies who are spiritually influential on the Philippian church. And part of why Paul is writing is, to, is in response to things they've said about him and challenges they've made about him and influences they're bringing into in the church, which he thinks are unhelpful. So he uses quite strong language. I think he calls them dogs and mutilations of the flesh at one point, which is quite strong language, isn't it? But, but, but actually, spiritual ambition can exist in the church. Tony and Joy and myself, from time to time, uh, get together a whole bunch of church leaders, for church leaders' gatherings. And actually, the fellowship is very sweet. But I have been in gatherings of church leaders where you kind of feel like people are a bit like, who's got the biggest church? Who's got the most powerful preaching ministry? And, and a little bit of jostling for who takes precedent, you know? And, and that's in our human nature, even in the church. And even in the, the local fellowship, it could be a little bit like that, can't it? So do nothing out of selfish ambition. What's the difference between selfish ambition and spiritual ambition? And I think there are a few things here for, for all of us. For, first of all, 
Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. There was uh, um, uh, some of the kind of ideas in the first century church, some of the Gnostic ideas, could almost be like, I've arrived, I'm kind of, sinless perfection has happened to me. And actually that notion of, you know, that, that is still around a little bit today in contemporary church. People feeling, I've arrived, I don't need to grow. Paul is not like that, is he? He said, I've not, I'm not there yet. And he, he's the kind of, the greatest missionary that the world has known. You know, he's, he's kind of one of the greatest theologians we've ever known. Someone who has risked his life and you think, if anyone's got there, it's Paul. But he says, I've not got there yet. And there's something about spiritual ambition which says, I'm still growing. I'm still on a discipleship journey. I haven't yet arrived. And I think the greatest Christians are people who are lifelong learners. They haven't settled or plateaued. They're saying that God has got more for me than I've yet experienced, that I've yet known. And that's something of that spirit. If that's in our midst, that's great. And I, and I, I, I feel that that's here in people here in this church, actually, that you're not saying we've arrived, but actually there's more and we're, we're hungry for that. But that is a good spiritual ambition. Second thing. It's not all because I'm especially holy. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. In other words, it's because of Christ getting hold of me that I've got something to get hold of. It's actually ultimately all about him. And spiritual ambition doesn't say, look at me. What a holy, virtuous person I am. That's the kind of attitude of the Pharisees that, that Jesus challenges, doesn't he? He tells a story, doesn't he, about a, a Pharisee. He says, thank you, God, that I fast twice a week and I'm not like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector is the one that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But, and, and Jesus says, it's, the, it's the, the, the second one that went home justified. And it's when we know that however much God has used us, it's because God has chosen to use us. It's actually about his grace. And one thing I love about the, the leaders of the early church, and most of the leaders of the Bible actually, is that we see them warts and all, don't we? We see their flaws. We see their, their failures, their sins. They don't do a cover-up job. They don't kind of whitewash their characters. And what you see is God's grace has used fallible people. But because God is gracious, fallible people like us can, can be used to do extraordinary things. But at the end of the day, we don't hold the glory for ourselves. My spiritual hero was John Wimber. And um, he always used to say, when people kind of praised him for his kind of ministry or whatever, he says, I'll take the encouragement and pass on the glory. <laughs> and that's a great little catchphrase, isn't it? And it's, it's not a bad thing to thank people, but let's not go, go to our heads, you know. We'll take the encouragement, thank you God for using me, but I'll pass on the glory. It's all about you. Third thing about um, spiritual ambition. It's about living out of the future, not out of the past. Paul says this, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's a great um, user of the athletic metaphor. 
And uh, in, in the kind of classical world, in, in, in the Greco-Roman society that he was part of, um, games, athletic games, were a real part of the culture. And, and, and people would, would, you know, the Olympic Games were still going strong and people would go in and watch athletes. And, and Paul uses the, the image of an athlete quite often. In 2 Timothy, he uses it. He, he uses the image of a farmer uh, and a soldier and an athlete. And, and, and he says that in 2 Timothy, actually, I've run the race. I've, I, it's near the end of his life. He's, he's aware that he's been running a good race. And, and in this race, he's kind of, you know, when, when you're running, you don't want to keep looking backwards to see who's behind you because you will lose momentum to do that. A good runner fixes their eye on the finish line and goes full tilt for that. And, and they can't be too bothered about what's behind them. And I, th- I think that's a metaphor, but you know, for many of us, the best days, the glory days of our Christian lives are in the past, not in the future. We talk about our testimony when I came to faith. Or we talk about the move of the Spirit that we remember in the 1980s or <laughs> in, at, when Toronto happened or whatever it is. And, and actually, for me, I, I've got some amazing stories in, in my Christian life, I look back to my first church planting experiences or, or kind of a season of the Spirit in the, in the 1980s where the manifest presence of God was incredibly strong. And I could live there and think, oh, that was, that was I peaked at that moment, you know? Or, or just trade off those things. Well, you know, I know, I, you know I'm, I'm confident in God because of all that happened then. But, I think spiritual ambition says we're not going to live out of our, f- of our past. We're going to live out of our future. And wherever we've come from in our past, whether it's been a good past or a bad past, let's live out of our future. It might be that you feel your past invalidates you for God using you. It might be there's been a moral failure in your life. Maybe there's, there's been a, a relationship breakdown that's been really hurtful or detrimental. It may be that you've been a bit like Peter at some point in your life and actually denied your faith in some ways. But one thing that we see from the Bible and one thing that, that's true is that we're not meant to live out of our past. It may be that you've, you've had a, a past life that has not given you confidence in God. It may be that you were yourself put down, abused, exploited sometime in your life. And you might think, what could I ever do for the kingdom of God? But God calls us to live out of our future. Actually, Jesus himself lived out of the future. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, the writer of Hebrews tells us. You know, and, and the fact that for Jesus there's a goal. He's got a goal. But for us... What does God have for us in the future? And, and, and for each one of us who know Jesus, the future is much better and much bigger than our past has yet been. And it might be a future that's tied up in the age to come. But I think in this life, can we see as much of the age to come breaking into the now? That is Paul's hope. He's very aware of the age to come, but I think he wants to see as much as possible now. I, and when you think about Paul as, a, as someone with ambition, he has incredible ambition. He says, I want to preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. You know, he's willing to go on mad journeys. He's willing to kind of endure shipwreck and he's willing to go and face kind of persecution and flogging. He's, he's willing to put himself out because he's ambitious to see as much of the kingdom on earth as can be. 
But it's out of the call of God, you know, it's out of the future that God has for him. But probably, I don't know if you read these verses last week, you know, where, where it says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. It's this goal that he has. It's all about him. And, and the great thing about spiritual ambition, as opposed to selfish ambition, spiritual ambition is very much about kind of getting as much of God as we, as we can, but it's not at the expense of other people. Back in, in, in Jesus' band, you know, there was plenty of ambition amongst those disciples. And you probably remember James and John, who, um, and their mum, wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand or their left. That's kind of a bit of ambition. You know, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you're ruling, can we be there as your right hand and left hand person? Can we be there kind of right next to you? And you know, oh, that's very commendable. A bit of spiritual ambition. You know? Actually, the, the, when Jesus came to his glory, the person on his right and his left were crucified thieves. They didn't know what they were asking. <laughs> but what, of course, James and John, it kicked off in the disciples, didn't they? Because, well, we can't have everybody at the right and the left. <laughs> it's kind of, my ambition is at your expense. That is not Paul's spiritual ambition, because spiritual ambition isn't I'm the best and everybody else is diminished. It means I'm going for something, and why don't you go for something too? Let's all get hold of this. And that's what you see in this writing. It says, you know, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward. And not just me, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And, and Paul's ambition isn't just for himself, it's for everybody. And, and in fact, you know, when Paul's writing to the Ephesians church, he says the job of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so we all reach maturity. It's never about, I'm going to feel better about myself because I'm better than you guys. It's kind of, let's together pursue God and get as much as we can. And it's that, that kind of, the difference between spiritual ambition is it wants the same for others, not at the expense of others. So I want to commend to you, first of all, spiritual ambition. And I, c I commend close spiritual ambition. And, you know, when, we, when we're chatting here, we're talking about this, this kind of call to ministry. I think it's not bad to, um, particularly if it's kind of full, we're all called to ministry, aren't we? All of us are called to ministry. But to, to perhaps to go on and become a minister in a full-time role, put it off until it becomes inevitable. Put it off. Because it's going to demand a lot from you. Put it off because you really need to test that vocation. But if it keeps coming back, it doesn't go away, then, then go for it. And, and the reason, one reason I brought Chloe with me, actually, is because I want to encourage her in that role. I think it is more challenging for women sometimes. Sometimes men are reluctant to mentor women because it doesn't always look appropriate. I said to Tony, look, do you mind if I come with a, an attractive young French girl? He, he said, no, I don't mind. I quite like it. <laughs> he didn't say that, actually. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's that we, we want to kind of... Um, we want to make room for everybody to be able to grow, men and women, into the call that God has for them. So, okay, second point from me. That was a long first one, wasn't it? Was it, was it all right? How are we doing? Live up to what we've already maintained. 
He's, he's saying, you know, if on some point you think differently, then you're wrong. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Actually. He says, that too, God will make it clear to you. I think he's implying you're probably wrong. <laughs> but he does say, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Living up to what we've already attained. That's the flip side of spiritual ambition. Okay, let's be ambitious. But we may not be the most ambitious people in the world, but at least let us live up to what we've already attained. You know, I think the Christian life is not a standstill life. It feels to me as if on planet Earth, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're living against the tide. And you've got to kind of think like a, like a fish. Have you ever been to a kind of trout stream and you, you look at, at the fish in the water? I like, I like going to Castle Coombe. Anyone been to Castle Coombe and walked along the river there? The water's really clear, isn't it? And there's very often fish in, in, the, in the stream there. And you see them quite still. But they're working quite hard to stay still because they're, they're against the flow of the, of the river. And, and if you are swimming against the, the, the flow, you've got to swim pretty hard just to stand still. And the Christian life is a little bit like that, actually. I think... We live in a world where there is the prince of this world and there are spiritual powers and human powers that are anti-Christ. And we have within us not just our new redeemed spiritual nature, but we still have the old flesh life that's kicking around there that, that left to its own devices will, will actually cause us to slip back. And, and, and Paul references that. He talks about their God is their stomach now. I understand that one. I Yesterday, I had far too much to eat. got to say, I, I live in community, and, and once a month, we have a house meal where we, we kind of take, on a Saturday night, we have an extended time together. We have a, a really nice meal. We, we think about our vision and values, and we do that in, the, in a kind of bit of a celebrating atmosphere, because I don't want it to be a kind of a business meeting where you don't want to come because you feel like they're going to be nagging me about this or about that. Let's have a bit of a celebration and let's share vision. But last night, I've got to say, the food was good. It was Mexican. We started off with nachos to start, and it was so nice I had two quantities <laughs> of nachos. Then we had the main course, which was delicious. And then we had pudding. And the pudding was homemade bakewell tart, delicious. Homemade meringues, homemade chocolate ice cream and fruit. Now, my problem is I've kind of given up cake because, you know, my God, I, I had two portions. I had first and I came up for seconds. So I understand that, you know, we, we've all got a flesh life, haven't we? But what, what Paul is saying is what we've got to do is not slip back because we're being secularized or because of the pressure of the enemy. But that we need to hold on to what we've already got. We've got to hold our own. And, and I think um, we can lose our life or we can lose our faith. And Paul talks about losing our own life to find it in Christ Jesus. But Jesus talks about if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. And there's something, uh, what that means, I think, is if we, if we just pursue our own self-interest, it's really hard to, to keep our faith. It's easy to lose it. So that's just maybe a little phrase to remember. We, you can lose your life or lose your faith. Let's lose our life for Jesus and find our life in him and hold on to our faith.
And, and Paul is concerned about a number of things um, about that, that could help, help people lose their, their, their faith or the vitality of their faith. He's concerned about false teachers. Verse 18. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, these are not people who are pagans. These are people who are probably the, the Jewish faction, the, the, the people that he's been referring to uh, earlier on. Um, and they haven't got they haven't got the cross. They haven't understood it. it's about grace, not about works. They're, they're trying to, to bring you back into religious systems. It could be those kind of peoples are there. And, and actually, religion is not going to save us, is it? It's not going to work for us. But it's so easy to slip into religion. It's so easy to slip into a kind of, to deconstruct our, our faith, to, to, to embrace a secularism, or, or a kind of, you know, an alternative philosophy, and there are all these kind of alternative Gnostic teachers around in Paul's days, and 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 they their attitude towards well, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies because we've got spiritual enlightenment, and so food or sex or whatever it is, those those those, those things we're free of those things because they don't really count, they don't really affect us because we're in this kind of heightened saint sense of spiritual revelation. But Paul's kind of. very challenging of these ideas. And for me, as I, you know, I'm 60, and over my adult life, I've seen people lose faith for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's because their experiences trump their understanding of God. And and something happens to them, for good or bad, you know, Maybe they fall in love with someone that they shouldn't have, and that trumps everything. Maybe they've had a painful experience, and they think, where was God? How did God allow that to happen? And they're living in the now of their experience. Now, there's something about being human beings is that we tend to we live in the now, and we forget so easily things that were in the past, but which were true. Isn't it interesting how sometimes when people who are really in love and in a really happy relationship. When something goes wrong, they can say, I never loved you. I was never in love with you. What's happened is they've, they've forgotten what that was like because they're living in the now of the new love that's come into their life or the new disappointment that's come into life, and that's coloring their memory of the past. We live in the now. And if it's true relationally, you know, you, you can... I, I'm sure you know people where a couple who truly were in love with one another, have become cold and distant. And that is as if that never was. And if that can happen in human relationships, it can happen in spiritual relationships as well. So people who were at one time genuinely in love with God, now it was as if they never knew God. I've, I've got a good friend in that position, actually, who when, when I, f- I first met them, they'd had a powerful conversion. And they were really used by God as, as a soul winner. And actually, I used to think when I was in their company, it was like being in the company of Jesus. It felt really alive. And, and that person has had a serious fall from grace, which has had a number of di- dynamics to, um, in, in moral terms and in material terms and has completely walked away from, from that faith. And, and it's not like it's completely forgotten, but it feels like that was another life, another time. They're living in there now, 
And, and yet what was once true is still true. God hasn't changed. And, and it is a sadness. It is a sadness. It, I can feel the tears of, of feeling, hmm, you're not living up to what God gave you. And I think there's some warnings for us that we need to, to guard that spiritual life. We are living against the tide and we need to guard our secret history. When, when Jesus um, talks in the Sermon on the Mount, Clove talked about the Beatitudes, the next chapter in, in Matthew chapter 6 is about a secret history with God. And, and Jesus tells us to do things for the sake of the Father when no one else sees except him. He talks about praying and fasting and giving to the poor and, and forgiving. And, 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 and I think we need to have a secret history with God that's powerful and alive so that we can keep hold of what what we've already we can live up to what we've already maintained. How are we doing? Coming to land? Last point? Last point and a half. <laughs> verse verse twenty. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, wasn't it? And um, it's a place where Paul has asserted his Roman citizenship. If you remember the story of the church planting in Philippi, when uh, in, in Acts chapter 16, Paul visits Philippi and he meets a woman called Lydia and, and then he drives a demon out of a slave girl and he and Silas end up in prison and they're, they're flogged and then there's an earthquake. You know, you know the story? Are you familiar with that story? And uh, at the end of the day, the magistrates want to let Paul and Silas go and Paul says, do you think it's lawful? To flog a Roman citizen without tribe? We're not going anywhere till you come and escort us off the premises. You know? And he asserts his citizenship. This is Philippi. It's not Rome, but its rules and its legislation takes its identity from Rome. And Paul is not in Rome, but he is a citizen of Rome and demands to be treated like one. And he gets his, he gets his dignity on that one. And here, he, he's, I, think, I wonder whether he's thinking about that story as he writes to the Philippians. But he's certainly thinking of that issue. And, and just as Paul could say, I'm a citizen of Rome, he can also say, I and you, our citizenship comes from heaven. We're not in heaven yet, but that's where our status is derived. Just as for Paul, my status is I'm a citizen of Rome. My real status is I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's where my citizenship came from. And when I think about the kingdom and what it means for us to be citizens of the kingdom, I think we're meant to have a sense of power and authority that comes from a citizenship that's heavenly. When Jesus walked planet Earth, he gave his disciples power and authority. He had power and authority. Jesus had received the Spirit without limit. He's God's Son. But when he sends his disciples out on mission trips, he says he gave them power and authority to heal the sick, to drive out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And when Jesus left planet Earth, 
He gave the disciples power and authority. In John 20, it says he came to the upper room where the disciples were gathered on that first Easter day when their authority was at rock bottom, when they'd run away, when they felt afraid, when they're hiding behind locked jaws. Locked jaws? (laughs) That's a nasty illness. Behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, it says. And so their sense of authority was zero, wasn't it? And he breathed on them. Received the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. That's authority, isn't it? Incredible. That's divine authority. When Jesus forgave people's sins, they said, who can forgive sins except God alone? And he's giving that to the disciples. And then he also says to them, but stay in Jerusalem to look clothed with power from on high. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, this time not like gentle breath, but like a mighty rushing wind. They're all filled with the Spirit and they have power. And that's the, the power that they, they, they live by. And that's the citizenship that they've bestowed on them. Power and authority. And, and Paul tells us, you know, we, we, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we've got power and authority to do life here. And we're waiting for a saviour from there. It's interesting, isn't it? Often, as Christians... We're not living a powerful Christian life. We're living a survival Christian life. We're holding on for heaven. It's called remnantitis. It's the kind of, you know, we're the last remnant and the world's going to hell and we're going to hang on there until we finally get to heaven. And, and Paul's mindset is not that at all. He's, he's, he's not waiting to go to heaven. He's waiting for the Savior to come to earth. He says this, we eagerly await a saviour from there. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're waiting for a saviour from there who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they'll become like his glorious body. And when he comes, there's going to be transformation. Are we trying to escape the world or transform the world? And, And Paul, as a citizen of heaven, that's where it comes from. Can we see heaven on earth? Can we see heaven breaking in? Can we see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Is there a saviour who's coming back? And of course, Paul is living in that Maranatha mindset. We're waiting for the return of the king. And we're doing all that we can to, to, to please him. while we're, we're preparing the way for his return. Just like John the Baptist prepared the way for the first coming, we, the church, are preparing the way for the second coming. And we're not just preparing it, we're actually seeing it breaking in because we live in the now and not yet. It's a phrase I'm fond of. I say it a lot at Woody's. The now and not yet. The kingdom has not yet come, but it is here. It's working among us. And one day it's going to fully come. But until that day, let's see as much of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that looks like proclaiming the good news to people who don't yet know it. It looks like bringing the power of God to the broken hearts and lives and bodies of men and women and seeing healing, both inner healing and external healing. It looks like justice for for the poor. It looks like the hungry being fed. It looks like the church. And as I finish, I'm going to pray for this church that you will be more and more able to press hold and take hold of that for which God has called you. Why has God put you in this location in Bristol? Why has God brought you together? Who are the people that he's giving you to, to reach and to win? So, Father God, I want to thank you for, for Waterbrook Church, and I want to pray that, that they would know the grace and power of God to be the people that you've called them to be.
I pray they would take hold of, of all that you have for them as individuals, but also as a community. I pray, Lord God, that they would see your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. I pray they'd be blessed in every way. I pray they'd have the joy of seeing people who they know, with their influence in finding faith. I pray they'd see the sick healed. I pray they'd see um, transformation in Bristol. I pray that their presence in this school would be a blessing to the families that use this school and for the children that, that learn here and the teachers that teach them. I want to ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.